1: And welcome to Is It My ADHD? The podcast about what it really feels like to have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I'm Grace Timothy and I'm a writer and I wasn't diagnosed with ADHD until I was 37. I'd struggled with traits I now know to be ADHD all my life, but it wasn't until a routine hearing appointment with a doctor who happened to have ADHD himself that these traits were pieced together and it was suggested that I get referred for an assessment. Had it not been for that random moment with an audiologist, I'd still be undiagnosed now and still struggling, just like the two million women thought to have undiagnosed ADHD in the UK today. I want to better understand what ADHD feels like for women and non-binary people, in whom ADHD is so often missed, thanks to the fact that the diagnostic criteria and research is all heavily skewed to the white male case study. I've therefore spoken to some incredible women about how ADHD affects their lives, exploring everything from friendship and work to dating and self-esteem. I've also pulled in some experts along the way to help us tackle the big questions from you and from my guests. Is it my ADHD when I ghost old friends, for example? Is it my ADHD when I break the photocopier at work? And is it my ADHD when I share nudes on Instagram? My hope is that we can spread awareness of ADHD in women and non-binary people and that you'll find some comfort in knowing you're far from being alone. Because with the right support, we can be truly amazing. Today, I'll be exploring the ins and outs of socialising when you have ADHD and how rejection-sensitive dysphoria might be making you go from riot to retreat mode in a flash. There are so many dichotomies within an ADHD brain that it can feel as though your sense of self is constantly shifting. Never more so with me than when it comes to the extrovert versus introvert question. I love parties, then I hate them I am the most fun and then I'm drained and unable to speak This hasn't always been the case After prolonged episodes of social anxiety from age 8 onwards I lucked out between the ages of 17 and 21 Seemingly finding my groove as a student I rarely passed up an opportunity to party Had loads of friends to ricochet between But then, RSD was worse than all my hangovers Be it because of an all-out rejection Or because a friend had looked at me weirdly Hypervigilance vigilance and some ultra intense self-awareness could tip me into just wanting to get the hell out of there. Fast forward 20 years, and sometimes I just feel like it would be easier to stay home. Co-founder of activism group Pink Protest and host of the Body Protest podcast, Honey Ross was diagnosed with ADHD at age 25. She has spoken about her anxiety and how that kickstarted much of her activism work, but I've always seen her as a really sociable soul, usually surrounded by friends and seemingly very at home in a crowd. But social anxiety and RSD have impacted the way that she socialises for years, much like me. Honey, thank you so much for coming on to go into this with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here chatting with you. I feel like from now on, I wouldn't mind going to parties if we could go together and then do those looks where you're like, What's happening? we got to go. Yeah, that's like the eye contact. Like, you need to have a breather in the bathroom. Just like, take a minute, take a breath. Is that one of your coping mechanisms to kind of step away for a minute, go to the bathroom, just breathe?
2: Oh my God, yeah. I mean, like, I will. it was so funny when you were introing me, I had so many kind of flashbacks to things that I actually hadn't realised were ADHD at the time. Or like, you know, it's, it's that strange kind of confluence of ADHD and anxiety. So you're not really sure where one starts and the other one ends. And that's what I've been trying to decipher. But I had such a vivid memory of being at a house party when I was a teenager. And my friend, who I'm still friends with to this day, had a shower in her bedroom, really weird, like tucked out of the way. Bizarre. And I remember hiding in that shower and I heard then everyone else came into the room and started playing a game and I was standing in the shower like, oh my God, I can't come out because I've been in here for 20 minutes. And if I come out, they'll go, that girl's been in the shower. Like, why is she in the shower? And so I just stayed there for ages and then just was like, you just got to be bold. And I just walked out and was like, bye everyone. And they were like, what the (laughs) fuck? So yes, uh, kind of dipping out, taking a breather. I I used to find myself just constantly in the loo, just like staring at myself in the mirror like slapping my cheek going like get in the game come on (laughs) get back out there and it's you know it's very real did you have that kind
1: of at school and things as well of that you know moment of just needing to dip out oh yeah that's really socializing as a kid isn't it you're all you know even if you're under an adult's control you're still having to put that face on
2: yeah definitely I think I used to think there was something really wrong with me because I was like why do I get so exhausted by this when it seems like everyone else is just being able to kind of have these conversations and it doesn't completely wipe them out? But like, even at school, I would constantly like... Not constantly, but like, I definitely was not afraid to look like I had um, irritable bowel syndrome. You know, I definitely spent a lot of time in the school bathrooms just breathing and going like, it's okay, like you're doing good. And like, or not even, I I wish I was being that nice to myself. I think I was probably being a lot harsher with myself. Now that's me talking with hindsight. That's what I would have liked to have said to myself then. Or had someone else to say to you, but you can't let on, can you? What's going on? No. No. Exactly. You know, I think I was very lucky because my friendship group at school who, and I'm still quite good friends, I'm quite good. I'm still best friends with a lot of them. We all had big old mental health issues. So it was very normalized to talk about, but I, I didn't know I had ADHD. I had friends with ADHD. So, ah. I, yeah, so I saw it in them and they kind of, it was also like, because because of the time I grew up, I think you very much identified with your mental health issues. So I was like, I'm anxiety, depression, gang. <laughs> and then I had, which sounds so awful. And I had friends who were like, well, we're ADHD. <laughs> And it was like, you can't, you can't sit with us. But it was like, we were all best friends, but it was kind of like, this is my identity. This is, I have ownership over this. So I never even began to think that I might have overlap with ADHD because of the symptoms they were telling me about, which weren't necessarily the ones that I exhibited. And
1: still that kind of whole spectrum of, especially ADHD and women and non-binary people hadn't quite... No. reached the main street and had it. So it was just, you must have just been looking at this going, it's, it's the same as me looking at an
2: eight-year-old boy when I was that age and going, oh, that's not me, so that's fine, you know. 100%. Well, it was always the idea of like, oh, it's like you're super hyperactive and you can't sit down and you're always fidgeting. And I'm like, I am always fidgeting, but I just thought that was because I was nervous and anxious. Suddenly made, well, you know, it wasn't until my god mum got diagnosed with it and she would talk to a couple of years ago and she would talk to me a lot about it and I started kind of things sort of clicking into place and going like oh that sounds like me like executive dysfunction I think that was one of the first things where I went it has always been all or nothing for me it's always been either complete paralysis of I cannot do the next I can't do any of these tasks I have so many tasks I could not possibly begin one of them (laughs) Or I am hyper fixated and locked into organising a cupboard for the next 10 hours. And it was no in between. And I was like, this is exhausting. And it was when my godmom started to speak to me a bit about that. I was like, oh, okay, maybe this is something I should look into. And then obviously recently, which has been brilliant. So many, like you said, women and non-binary people kind of coming to this later in life. I had a friend say to me the other day like everyone's getting diagnosed with ADHD and I was like (laughs) (laughs) it feels like some kind of fun trend I was like no like no this is life-saving I was like the the, kind of the self-compassion you're able to extend to yourself when you realize that it's ADHD and you're not just fundamentally broken which I hate I hate even saying that but that was how I felt I was like why don't I operate like everybody else and then I was like well no, because I, my brain is wired differently and that's fine.
1: God, you're right. It's the key to self-compassion and self-talk changing, isn't it? And actually, even if you don't take any meds or the coaching doesn't happen for you or whatever it is, even just
2: addressing the way that you think of yourself is just so empowering. Completely. And just being able to kind of like, oh, well, you know, what? I've, I've got a great story about it, which is back to my godmom who I'm obsessed with she's the best but she told me you know that I was with her the other day and she's like right I've got to go I've got I've got an event that I've said I've got to be at and she turns up and they go you're two weeks early and she was like yeah that's us and, and she was like pre-diagnosis I would have melted down but now I know I was just like laughed it off and just went silly silly old me with my ADHD brain like that that is what it is and I think that self-compassion and just be able to go like, oh, it's just how I am. And it, it just, it's, it's so much more. I mean, it's just being gentle with yourself, isn't it? It's like life is hard enough without you working against yourself. <laughs> so in terms of socializing, then if
1: we go right back to that sort of story, what did that look like for you before your diagnosis on a bad day versus a good day?
2: Now, adulthood, I, I definitely take things a lot better but I still obviously am really affected by RSD and like I was telling you the other day that I hadn't really found that label yet and when I found that all of these kind of previous stories came clicking into place and it was very um, enlightening but like when I was a teenager at house parties I didn't go to uni so I because of this to be honest because I was like I won't survive I will hate it I, I hate socializing in this way I'm not a natural. I find it so funny, like at the start of the intro, you being like, you know, I think of you as like a very social person and out with people. And I'm like, oh God, it's so interesting. I just do not see myself like that. But, um, I mean, I have a lot of great friends and stuff, but it's just, yeah, never been the thing that I identified with because at house parties, I used to feel this perceived rejection and just be the girl who was sobbing at the party. You know, a couple of drinks, I'd look around. Everyone else seemed like they knew what they were doing. Everyone else seemed at peace. And I just felt just like, I, I felt like an AI. Like I just was like, I'm not quite right here. And I just remember like, just being inconsolable. Often, Most were remember me crying and going, I've just got to go home, I'm really sorry, I've just got to go <laughs> which is so fun. Everybody loves that energy so <laughs> it's not a drag no yeah not like my poor (laughs) friends they're always like oh honey's crying again i'd be be like can you just come with me to the bedroom and just sit on the bed with me and they'd be like oh i was about to get off with a fit guy and i would be like but i'm having a breakdown (laughs) can you pencil that in (laughs) it was so liberating when i got to a point of one being a bit older and liking myself of going one i don't have to ever go to a party i don't want to and two as you get older and you actually have friends you really, really love and like, you feel safe in those environments and you don't, and I, I don't find myself bursting into tears at parties anymore, often. It hasn't happened for a long time. You know, I feel like I need to have one of those things like 120 days since the last <laughs> sobbing incident, but you know. But then I think the thing is, again, it's like
1: we're, we're so conditioned to think that that's what's expected of us, particularly in certain age ranges, so like so i was as i said i was quite good at partying because i could drink and that seemed to just sort of medicate any kind of even the sensitivity thing weirdly it would it would numb me i think to that until well until you go too far and then obviously that sensitivity is like woo, it's like you know exposed nerves but when i then got a job and kind of had to join the world of work and be a grown-up and pay rent and all that sort of stuff properly that was when it was almost like the demands had mounted and so i couldn't be carefree like drinking and doing all the crazy stuff and i couldn't go out anymore i was i was that person hiding looking at people i know like i've i mean god i've done it since having a daughter at the school gates even there are certain parents that i feel really uncomfortable around and there's no reason for it they're not bad people i just don't get the right vibe and then go home and spiral that like oh my god because they think i'm a dick and
2: it's that you know yes well no that i mean that's the double-edged sword of anxiety and adhd of like we are very sensitive to people's, I mean, I'm about to sound so hippy-dippy, but, like, energies. But, like, we are very sensitive to people's energies and the kind of wavelength someone's on. And I can immediately kind of tell if someone's just not going to get it. And like sometimes you have a conversation with someone and you're like, oh, I've had a visceral reaction to you. Like, this is not... And so you just avoid it. You start avoiding it. And then you're like, oh, people must think I'm stuck up or an asshole or, like, a God knows what. And you go home and you spiral and you're like, oh, no, and they probably think I'm really mean and that they think anything. And it's like, no, it's just that I don't think I... Can give you what you need in a conversation, and I find that fundamentally challenging.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and also, you can't give me what I need in a conversation because there's no
2: reassurance there. That, that's 100% mm. it. it's like fuck what I can give you It's like you, you can't make me feel better So I'm gonna that I don't, Both don't make me sound great but you know what I mean I do and
1: they both do make you sound great Because you're self-aware I think that it's when It's kind of like a new form of Almost like cancel culture like do you just say Right that relationship isn't for me and I'll step away From it or and
2: do you explain to that Person I suspect not it's like It's just there's a lot Well, You know it's I am a big fan Of um, cutting people out If you need to <laughs> I am best. I, okay, thank God. I, you know, one of my best friends is Michelle Ellman, who is a life coach, and she's known as the queen of boundaries. So, like, I feel like I'm very lucky to have someone that I can go to being like, this is happening. And she'll be like, stop that. Like, you'll be like, leave them. Like, what are you doing? Uh, but much more eloquently and kindly than I've just done. I think it, that is self preservation and that's protecting yourself. And the fact is, you've only got so much energy and so much time. And also, we're grappling with our brains working overtime and keeping this mental checklist that we can't you know we have no control over so if there is one thing you can control it's the people that you have around you and that's why it's so vital to if someone isn't sparking joy take a big old step back like life's too fucking short I you know I spent years trying to be this kind of like court jester and like please people and just I don't know meet people's expectations and then I was like Am I even meeting my own expectations? Do I even like myself? Am I waking up and making choices that make me feel proud of who I am? And it was when I took a step back, cut out a fuck ton of people and then started doing things for me that I was like, oh, this is gonna be fine. We're all good.
1: Yes, and that's pre-diagnosis. So you just did that as a natural instinct thing. I would
2: love to give myself all the credit, but I was I, <laughs> being honest, I've been in therapy or was in therapy from the age of 14 because I just had terrible anxiety, terrible depression. Um, also what's so funny to think of is a lot of, I also had suicidal ideation at times, which is a symptom of RSD. It was usually like the next day when I would unpack things I'd said or done, especially when drunk and anxious, that I would wake up the next day and feel the need to, I'd want to throw my phone into the river. I wouldn't come to school. I found myself feeling so mortified for the things I've potentially done. And the fact is no one was thinking about it. Nobody, everyone else is just thinking about themselves. No one is thinking about what you did at the party. Unless you literally shat yourself in the center of the room and then like took your pants off and waved it around. No one's thinking about you. I guarantee it. It's so true. And that, you know, I think I just had this feeling that I was like, I'm a really, there's, I'm a bad person. Like I just had that ingrained shame of like, I don't know what it is I've done but I've done something like it was really awful. It, but especially that comes with the anxiety and like intrusive thoughts of like, horrible intrusive thoughts, like I've murdered someone and I don't know who or where I've buried the bodies, but I think I probably have. And it's like that, I mean, God, bless, like I'm like gently rubbing my head at this moment. Cause I'm like, you put you poor little dear. Like, that, you know, it's a lot to process when you're a teenager and you don't know what to make sense of it. You know, you you don't know what it is. And you're like, why do I feel this way? And why is this inside me? But. I'm here and I'm so glad I am. And like, that is the thing. It's like self-compassion and patience is all you can extend to yourself. Because also it's like, you know, it's better than the alternative of just being cruel to yourself, which, you know, comes very naturally to most of us. It's an instinct, isn't it? But also for me, being an old
1: lady, listening to you talking about how, you know, you had anxiety and you were out there with that and your friends had ADHD you know, when when I was going through like OCD at eight and self-harm, all those things, I would never have told anyone other than maybe my mum and that's it. Like it was a shame and even, and she would have kept it to herself as well under, you know, my instruction. We we would not have talked about it at all. And actually now I talk to my friends when we were all at school together at that age, we all, we all had the same things. We all had anxiety, several had ADHD, but we would never have had that moment of that intimacy that you need to say this is what's happening with me, and I want to support you, and you know we can hold hands and it's going to be okay, kind of thing. So that to hear you say that makes me feel like you know my daughter's future is in such a better place because if we've got ten plus years between us, and you know looking ahead to, to ten years younger than you now, that's where we need that help, isn't it?
2: It's so old hat. Like people are like, yeah, and like of course I've got this, this, and this. These are my medications. Like it's so exciting. Like it's wonderful. Like. Because when I was still kind of early days, there was so much shame around medication and like less shame about talking about it because I was the Tumblr generation. (laughs) So we were very much like, I'm so sad. But like, and I was so sad. So it was great to have people talking about it, but it was like, we maybe slightly egged each other on. Like I will, I will own that. But that's the thing of like, it's so strange to me that for such a long time, we kept it so under wraps because it's it's so common i mean and it's generational and it's ingrained and you know if you have something chances are your parents do one of them if not both and that means their grandparents had something and that means their grandparents had something so it's like why did we not talk about this for hundreds of years remind me (laughs) it's it's so nuts to me I think, like,
1: we'd like to play a game in our family <laughs> where we go, who had the ADHD? Like, who gave it to me? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and it's really interesting. It started off as, like, my parents would be like, oh, we, you know, we don't know about this thing. And this is, you know, this is very much your journey. And then they started fighting over which of them had probably imparted it. And now and now they're sort of at this, like, level phase where well, we've just all got this thing in common. It's fine. We don't, you know, don't need a diagnosis. We, we know what the traits are and stuff. It's really funny to watch that. And then also to go, yeah, like you say, back to your grandparents and go, what was happening there then? You know, like, that's that's probably informed that all those behaviours that we thought were just, you know, the era or, you know, misogyny, the patriarchy, all those things. Was it also this huge part of these people that, you know, couldn't control impulses? And, you know, there's so
2: much to unpack. Well, no, and they didn't know what was going on in their brains and they didn't have someone to talk to about it. And... To a degree, I wonder how much of the way they handled things was a coping mechanism. I mean, I'm sure there was an element of like, if someone did try and talk about it, people would be like, but like, I do think a lot of it is people didn't have the words, they didn't have the vocabulary. And so the repression was built over time from a group of people who weren't able to vocalize how they were feeling, which then went down to another generation who watched people clearly feeling the same things they were, unable to vocalize it. And it's just a cycle, isn't it? We're breaking it. We're breaking it, baby. Look at us go, breaking those generational curses. No, I I even saw it the other day of my grandpa. Just noticing my grandpa has terrible anxiety. He's never been diagnosed, but I'm like, of course it was. You know, I always have like, to my mum. it was like, well, it was fucking one of yours. You You know, because I'm like, of course it was. Like, of course he does.
1: The second series of Is It My ADHD is made possible by our sponsor, To Better Days. Chronic pain and migraines are a well-documented comorbidity of ADHD. It's something we often see within our community. It is also an issue that, like ADHD, can be wildly difficult to pin down and find support for. 70% of those who experience chronic pain are women, and on average it takes more than seven years to obtain a diagnosis. Two Better Days is keen to support and empower the chronic pain community, not just with their drug free pain relief patches for migraines and chronic pain, but by giving those affected a voice and really listening to understand the daily challenges of self advocacy and effective pain management. Everyone's pain is different and complex, and Two Better Days don't overpromise. But their hope is that a patch you can pop in your pocket in case of a flare can ease your day. They have also given listeners of this podcast 10% off all products if you use the code GRACE10. Thank you so much to Better Days. What are your coping mechanisms now then? So post-diagnosis where you've got that self-compassion and understanding. If you're in a social environment and you are like, or you've got the RSD kicking in, like what happens now? Well, you know what? I'm so
2: in tune with myself now. If a feeling kicks in, I go home. I like if I'm at a party and I feel a type of way and I and I can sense that it's unsalvageable, I'm like, guys, I love you. Goodbye. Good night. I'm not afraid to leave the party early. And I always feel proud of myself for leaving a party early. Like I have from a young age of going like, I really know myself. Look at me go. Like I'm going home. I'm gonna go home. I'm gonna, you know have a nice shower, have a nice bath, put on a face mask and go to bed and have a great night's sleep. Like that to me is very, very powerful. But in terms of other coping mechanisms, recently I deleted Instagram again. I feel like I cycle that every couple of months and delete it because I feel like anything that has an algorithm that taps into to the addictive centers of our brain, I, I can't. Like I can't, I'm too scared to download TikTok. I know it will ruin my life and it's like, I found myself especially during like lockdowns a couple of years ago absolutely locked in to the scroll and it was so disturbing and so depressing and I'd look up and I'd be like oh my god what the fuck have I been looking at for 10 hours like it was f- terrifying and I just was like the world is so beautiful and stimulating as is I don't need something manufactured so like I, you know I love to journal I love I love a box set I just I try and channel my energy into like reading anything other than my staring at my screen for 10 hours if I can avoid it is my coping mechanism. (laughs) And do you in terms of um, the kind of rejection
1: sensitive dysphoria, which, by the way, I've been calling rejection sensitivity disorder for a long time not sure I've conflated or I've come up with a new thing. I've come up with a new thing. I mean, it's all much for muchness, isn't it? I guess. How do you kind of deal with that in in your relationships? Do you kind of own up and say, look, I'm feeling this. Is this something that we need to talk about? Or do you still sort of internalise? Or how do
2: you get around that? I mean, I think the other day I had a real visceral experience of rejection, sensitivity, dysphoria. And it was because I had a conversation with my parents about something and I just I don't know what it was. I spiralled. I love my parents. I'm really, really close with my parents. I don't know. I absolutely spiralled and I didn't bring it to them because I was like, they're stressed enough. They got their own shit. But I went to my boyfriend freaking out and he was like, because uh, I didn't really know what it was. I was just like, to me, I just was like, I'm having a panic attack. This was before I had even found the term um, rejection sensitivity dysphoria. Um, and I was freaking out and I was going like, my brain is telling me some really dark stuff and I know that that's not actually how I feel. Um, One thing that helps me a lot is to, to say, either to myself or out loud, I am not my thoughts, I'm the observer of my thoughts. And I'm sure that has come up on this podcast many a time of like, especially with like suicidal thoughts when you're like, I don't actually want this. My brain is just going, maybe you should. And you're like, I really don't want to actually, I'm good. But, you know i went to my boyfriend and he, he was like get in the shower get in the shower and don't come off the phone like just sh- like hose yourself down breathe like it was really moving actually he was really he was really wonderful with that yeah i think it's about finding a person who feels safe and confiding the dark stuff with you know whether that's a, a trusted loved one or a paid professional i think it's just important to release the valve sometimes because i think it's a lot to carry on your own you shouldn't have to carry that on your own. And I think it's, you know, we need people, which is also part of the curse of it of like, like you said, sometimes you go, I'd rather stay home. I'd rather stay home just to avoid this feeling. And it's like, well, if you stay home, then you lose out on all of the love that you get when you leave, you know, it's like the highs are high and the lows are low, but it's worth it ultimately of like, you have to participate and you have to build these connections because what else is there in this this crazy world? so true but also you have to it's a leap isn't it to
1: know and i think as long as you know that you go sometimes actually guys no i'm gonna like i know what the right path is here but it's taking that leap to go am i gonna put myself out there and try it and potentially yeah have those feelings of panic but have like a some sort of escape route if you don't want to do it i think that's i think that's the hardest thing with the self-awareness because i think before i had adhd i would have just been like i'm probably fine to go out all the time it's probably fine it's probably fine and then there's something about understanding the way that your brain may react to something that some you know makes you feel a little bit like you've broken your leg and you don't quite want to stand on it yet
2: do you know what i mean 100 percent. well no because i'll make plans that's a perfect and horrible way of putting it i'm so with you on that (laughs) But it's so true. But like, I'll make plans optimistically. I'll like fill my week up with plans and then it will get to the night and I'll go to my boyfriend like, I don't want to go. And he's like, you never want to go. You never, ever want to go out. And it's deciphering when are the nights that I actually don't want to go out. And one of the nights that my brain is going like, don't go out, stay inside and isolate yourself. And it's like, it's very hard to distinguish, but that's what I'm working on. But also again, There's something really wonderful about having friends where you can text them. And I really actually learned this again from my godmom, who I'm obsessed with, Um, where you need to have people that you can text going, guys, I'm so sorry, I actually feel like shit today. I'm having a horrible mental health day. My brain is just working against me. And yeah, I just need to stay at home and have smooth brain time. That's what me and my friends say at me we like, give it me some smooth brain time. I need to watch some absolutely mindless shit on the TV or play a game or anything, but smooth brain time. Can't be with any people, just need good old smooth brain. <laughs> but one of the things you said to me, which
1: really like, oh God, yes, is how much energy and light we get from connections with people. And the minute you isolate, you lose so much of that energy. And actually, even in that kind of self-care vibe of like, I'm just going to go into myself and look after myself. And that can actually be just as damaging.
2: One hundred percent. Well, it's, I, I, I kind of call it cocooning. I it can feel a bit like my year of rest and relaxation if I've like, made myself stay in for that many times I'm like, because you're going like, but how can it be wrong if my skin is glowing? Because I've looked after myself so well. And it's like, no, because you haven't seen anyone in two weeks or whatever. I've often found that when I do go out. I make a lot of connections very easily and very fast. And I love making friends and I love people. I just love people. I love hearing their stories. I love, I love connection. I'm obsessed with connection, but it comes at a cost. It really comes at a cost to me because if I get sucked in, I can really give too much. I can overextend myself and then come home and be like, I have nothing left. I have absolutely nothing left to give for myself or anyone. and it's having those boundaries with yourself. I'm still navigating that. It's difficult because it's like, you know, part of me wishes I could be this social butterfly all the time, but I'm so fundamentally not.
1: I think also like, because obviously we have this really niche thing in common of having parents who have been in the public eye and you know, whatever, when we were growing up, that's like an interesting thing that like, I, I always get, oh, it must run in the blood. And I remember as a child, thinking oh god they want me to do a skit or something (laughs) as soon as anyone would say are you going to be an actor and i'd be like yes okay like you i had the crippling anxiety i i didn't want to but i think what i think what's interesting about maybe our experience is that there was a, a, a bigger expectation of us to be gregarious and want to be center of attention and stuff and and perhaps you know we actually had probably quite a lot of unwanted attention as well as a result of that just through writ of who our parents
2: were Oh my gosh, yeah. Oh God, it's, uh, you know, I think it's such a niche thing (laughs) and I'm really um, grateful that we can kind of unify all this and bond on this because it's such a unique, weird experience and like, it really resonated for me, that thing of people being like, oh, can you move out the way? We actually, we just want, we just want them in the photo. And like, you're a child and you're like, (laughs) I take up too much space and I'm disgusting. Like that was immediately, my brain told me that and it was like, you are a problem. But then on the other hand of it, I would have people coming up to me going, so you're going to go into the family business? And I was like, I am... six. I am not going to be a talk show host. Like I was like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I'm a child. I have no fucking idea. And, but then of course, yeah, there was an element of, I've always been funny. I've always loved making people laugh. I was the class clown. Like I loved, I I try not to be the disruptive class clown because I was also a huge teacher's pet. It was like, I was doing such a funny tightrope walk of like the biggest people pleaser and the biggest Kind of jester and i think it was because i felt like if i could be grounded in those identities i didn't actually need to think about who i actually was if i was the funny one if i was every teacher's favorite it didn't really matter i was getting that validation i was getting i was pleasing my classmates i was pleasing my teachers and i was like you know whatever happens to me is irrelevant which is very sad to think about now and it was so interesting yeah i, I felt very shy a lot of the time but in those moments of performance or like, I see, I loved, like, I loved musical theater and I was like big drama geek at school and Mm, like, right. And it was that kind of controlled outlet of this extraversion that I think I found really liberating of like having the control of like, I'm on stage, I'm performing, you get to perceive me now, you get to be part of this. And then I could get off stage and cower and be myself and be like, and also just the, the rush I would get from that felt like drugs and making teachers laugh and things like that. It was like the highs I would get from that validation, which is why I think it's not good for me. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 yeah right, but it's like, that's why I'm kind of like, I don't think Instagram is the best thing for me or because I'm like, I often think when I'm reaching for my phone, what am I reaching for? I think I'm reaching for validation from someone I don't need it from. You need to validate your own ticket. You need to stamp your own ticket first. And I kind of live by that. Holy shit. You're just like,
1: just blown my mind with the idea that like being on stage is this like finite bit of extroversion or whatever it is like oh my god you're so right like and it ends and you go away into the dark and like you're no longer that person anymore whoa yeah
2: i know well you know I, i had a therapist when i was younger he was like you know You think about the biggest performers in the world, like pop stars and musicians and things like that. They perform to hundreds of thousands of people, but ultimately they get home and have to look at themselves in the mirror and get into bed alone and like the person they are. And hearing that as a child, I was like, there is this separation of selves, of the self you present to the world and the self you are. And as much as we're in this age of authenticity, there will always be a gap because there are so many facets to who you are. So you can never present your most authentic self. You can present as authentically as you can. But I think there are always elements to yourself that sh- one should be kept for you. And two, like, I don't know, I just think it's not possible to show everyone everything. Because also your most, your purest, most inner child self, probably not that interesting, like not particularly interesting for other people's consumption because she doesn't exist for that. She exists for me. And that's a beautiful, magical thing that I have, that you get to share this time with yourself and time spent alone is never time wasted. Also, that person's
1: evolving. I mean, I mean, that is changing all the time. You know, I think so many of us want to pin an identity so that we can then identify with that person, if you know what I mean. So like, OK, well, I'm the, you know, I don't know, I'm the soccer mum, or I am the career girl or whatever. And like you say, it's so much more nuanced than that, that there's just no way that you can ever achieve that in a sort of satisfying way.
2: Well, also as well, when you think about it, like think of how many versions of yourself that you have been, which is the soccer mom probably was once the career girl. We don't know. And that, that's something I also work on, of like having compassion for past versions of myself. Cause I think it's so easy to look back on past versions of yourself, maybe when you weren't diagnosed with things and cringe. And you're like, no, she was doing her best. Like I look at her and I just feel fond of her. And I feel sad for her in these moments when she was maybe alone and confused and didn't know how to act around certain things. and. I like, I often try and like give myself a hug. If I'm feeling a little bit alone, I'll put my arms around myself and be like, you're doing okay. And like speaking out loud to yourself, I think it can feel silly at first, but it's really grounding and really life-changing and being like, no, you deserve to have kind words spoken to yourself, even if they're coming from you. Like always, you are always worthy of hearing kind words. I think that really
1: strongly they're meeting other people with ADHD that they know that feeling and that gr- sense of grief for their past selves, especially as children that we kind of we all share in that. And like, I want to give your baby you a hug. And like, and I know that you would ca- care for my eight year old me. I would love to give baby you a hug. Yes. Yeah. yeah, she was so cute. I um, bet. I think the thing is, as well, is I look at you and you, you are I mean, you've literally founded a community movement. So you are placing yourself amongst people with an amazing cause at the back of it all, or at the front of it really how does the the sort of rsd and all that kind of stuff
2: play out in your public professional
1: life in that respect
2: oh that's a really good question i really struggle it's one of the reasons i've taken a bit of a step back from instagram recently just because oh god it sounds it's so unrelatable what i'm about to say but i went through a period of any time i posted anything that was a little bit controversial not controversial it's just my body um it would get picked up by tabloids which was horrible. And, uh, you know, I, like you mentioned, I've had unwanted attention my entire life. I am just here and um, have always been photographed against my consent, all of these things. And as I've gotten older, I think I found a bit more power in taking charge of that and being in control of my image. But then obviously there's only so much you can control that like you can't control everything. And it's so funny. I'm very good at like not reading things, but like... <laughs> one of the things I hate about Instagram is I'll post a photo and then people will comment on it going ignore what they're saying you're beautiful and I'm like what are they saying <laughs> like, I haven't heard anything I'm like Jesus Christ but I you know I know there's an element of the dysphoria of feeling like I hate feeling misunderstood like no one likes feeling misunderstood but really I think with the RSD that is so heightened going like no that's not what I meant that's not what I meant and you've misread that or you've purposefully misunderstood me or you've tried to take my words and twist them or you've made the headline something that wasn't what I was saying and yeah I really struggle with that lack of control where it, and I think that's why I have wholeheartedly leaned into my writing which I'm very lucky and fortunate to have the option to do um and have you know it's something I've actually kept quite private over the years of like my screenwriting career because it's something that is so precious to me and I've been writing since I was 18. Um, but I just was like, you know, with that, I can have control. You know, one it's bliss. Cause I can sit in a room on my own for six weeks and no one can tell me anything because I'm a writer and two, it's just me making sense of my thoughts and processing my life through stories and that, uh, that I can do that. I can do, <laughs> you know, whereas having a million people's unwanted opinions, I don't think I can do that anymore. You know, I have a lot of admiration for people who can and I know a lot of people who deal with that and I just don't know if I'm built for it.
1: Well, maybe in this moment, I think that it shifts, doesn't it, constantly? And your ADHD will shift.
2: 100%. And like, you know, when I was 20 doing Pink Protest, which was the most incredible time and it, it was the most special time, but sometimes I look at how I was at 20, 21, 22 and go like, God, she's confident. Like, I'm like, how was she doing all of that? Like, I'm looking at me going like fearless. That girl was absolutely fearless. And I would hear people say that to me at the time and I wouldn't really get it. And now I look at that and I'm like, and like I don't know, maybe it's two years of a pandemic of being locked inside and not really having any feedback. And I think the dysphoria, the rejection dysphoria I would feel now for the things I was doing then. And also if I were doing it now, there would be a different level of attention on it. Now it would be very different. And I don't think I could have handled it, honestly. <laughs> I would have handled it because People can do hard things, quote Glennon Doyle. But it's, you know, it's it's tough. I think it's interesting, though, that as a young person that you
1: put your you did put yourself out there and you you created what you created and you joined that community and then like led it. Because that fearlessness, it, that's a huge part of ADHD is doing doing hard things, doing things that other people would think were hard. But you go, well, obviously, I'm going to do this. But I find that so interesting about that shift, because I, I mean, I'm 100% with you. I've done things in the past. That I look back and think, how, how did I put myself in that situation? And whether that's just, you know, wisdom with age or fear with age or whatever it is, I don't know. But like, it's it, it's about trying to find that fearlessness and then, and then channel it, isn't it, in a good place? And maybe way post-pandemic.
2: Completely. But I also think I was like, you know, I've... Like with energy for socializing, I think I have a finite resource of fearlessness. And with writing, it takes a fuck of a lot of fearlessness to even feel comfortable. you know, once a day I question myself and go like, ooh, it's embarrassing that you're doing this. No one wants to hear what you say. And then it's like, no, just keep typing. Don't listen to that voice. And like, that's, that's my fearlessness. That's where I choose to channel it, you know, of like, I choose to wake up and try and tell my silly little stories because that, makes me feel really happy and I want to help people through that and I think I was like you can't do everything I think i was so terrified of living in the shadow of who my parents were that I was like you've got to be exceptional which I think is also an ADHD thing of this perfectionism of going like you have just got to work 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 so people know you're a human being and people can humanize you and I was like you know what I think whatever you want about me it's none of my business (laughs) like I just want to be happy like I want to look after my plants like (laughs) i don't i don't need to be the loudest most gregarious person in the room i don't need to be this anymore because i don't know i feel like i've said my piece i've done what i needed like i I will be speaking on things forever whether people like it or not but like the work i did in my early 20s i'm so proud of it but like that i don't think i could ever do that kind of activism again because it's so intensive and it's so thankless in a lot of ways <laughs> and but i'm so glad i did it and it's some of the work i'm most proud of in my entire life mm. i think my one of my bestest friends said to me the other day you don't have to be
1: special and i think it's our generation but it's also our you know yours and mine upbringing and where we were and you know in that situation you you don't have to be and when you realize that and you let go of those ambitions or whatever it is that have been potentially like really damaging to you with everything else that you have to kind of support in your life oh what a feeling
2: like it's amazing just going you're enough, you're just existing. Oh, my friend, Georgia gave me this brilliant book called um, How To Do Nothing. It's amazing. And it kind of talks about how we've been taught because of capitalism and so many other factors of like, every single moment has to be the most productive. And even in moments of rest, you're like, how can I make this rest productive? Like You're like, oh my God, just chill out. You know, when when did we stop just thinking just existing was enough? because it is enough, you know, just sitting and breathing and contemplating life and letting the sort like thoughts wash over you. It's enough. I'm not saying do it forever because, you know, we're in a cost of living crisis, so we all need to keep the lights on. But like when you can, you are worthy of a moment of nothing. It's like that thing of like, I remember romanticizing this massively as a kid, I
1: think probably because of wind and willows maybe, <laughs> but like the idea that you lie on the bank of a river and you fall asleep and you miss a whole day. I, I like, I cannot, I, even at, as a child, I could not
2: compute that in a million years. Like, how do you do that? That's a good, perfect day. Well, I, you know, I have so many tattoos of like frogs on me and I really, you know, I really identify with Mr. Toad as a, kind of, <laughs> as a character, you know, I really see myself in him a lot. You know what? I think you and I, we need to find a bank of a river and we need to have a day of just napping by that riverbank. Do it for Mr. Toad. Do it for Mr. Toad. Absolutely. Who, by the way, absolutely had ADHD? 100. The dancing. We've all seen him dance. And then we see him sleep. It's like the the constant movement and then sleeping by the bank of the river. I'm like, I feel seen. I feel so seen. <laughs> so true. And the terrible
1: driving, actually, shall we just Let's point that out? The- yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Uh, wait, is that ADHD thing? Oh, God. Yeah, 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 yeah oh jesus christ because i've only had three driving lessons and on the second one my window was rolled down and someone drove past and just went you're shit through the window no. i know and the driving teacher went the driver went you're not you're not shit and i was like i probably am i think I once you know
1: that the adhd may play play a role in your driving you're just way more vigilant and it's
2: fine i'm so ready now you've you've just got, i mean i mean the title of the podcast couldn't be more true <laughs> couldn't be more relevant <laughs> But thank you so so much, honey. Like, I
1: cannot tell you how grateful I am for sharing so generously. It's a lot. Like, oh, there's, there's a lot of stuff yeah. to unpack, and you're so early in that journey. So I doubly doubly appreciate you being so kind to share.
2: Thank you so much for having me and making this feel like such a lovely safe space. So I could share. I'm very grateful for you.
1: We now turn to an expert.
2: Now I feel very lucky to
1: welcome Dr. Joe Steer to the podcast. She is a chartered clinical psychologist working with children in Surrey and the author of Understanding ADHD in Girls and Women, which has become my Bible. Is it my ADHD when I flake on every party?
0: So ADHD can be really difficult in terms of one minute feeling like you really want to do something and making loads of plans and setting arrangements with with people, friends and family, and then when the time comes, really not feeling like you want to. So that energy level having gone, crashed, that kind of boom and bust of the hyperactivity that we know is part of ADHD. So it can one minute you feel like you really want to go to this party, you make an arrangement and then actually the party comes off, and you think, oh, I really don't want to go. Or you somehow get yourself there. But then when you're there, you really don't want to be there and you want to go home. And this this is really, really tricky. It can be part of ADHD. And we know that if you've got ADHD, it's really important that you have time in your diary and your daily life to rest your brain and to rest yourself. And sometimes you're not great at doing that because you make so many plans and then you end up thinking oh actually I don't really want to go because you're recognizing in yourself that you need that brain rest and that break from everything and all the stimulation but you've already made the plan and you then feel really caught in the middle and then the sensitivity around what other people might think of you for cancelling or not turning up kicks in and that triggers some of those emotional difficulties so you can kind of end up in a bit of a spiral really but parties are very overstimulating environments aren't they where you've got to talk to loads of people it's often really noisy can be lots of loud music and lights so actually not necessarily the best Most suited situation for someone with ADHD. So there's no wonder that there's perhaps a little bit of avoidance sometimes, some social anxiety about going. But we also know that people with ADHD can be the life and soul of the party and people will probably really value having you at their party and want you to be there and encourage you to come along. So you get really trapped between all of these different pushes and pulls, I think.
1: And also you can get quite a lot of energy, can't you, as someone with ADHD from other people and from that interaction if it goes well. So it's just a bit of a gamble all the time, I feel like.
0: It is a bit of a gamble. And I think it's also that, trying to if you go to then plan some downtime for afterwards the next day but even in advance of going planning some time where you can kind of just chill out a little bit before before you go and maybe make some arrangements with you know a good friend so that you can go together that you can actually leave early if you need to those kind of things
1: Thank you so much for joining me and this community of amazing people. We'd love it if you could follow Is It My ADHD wherever you get your podcasts from. And now I'd love to hear from you. What other perspectives would you like to see explored in future episodes? Find me on Instagram at isitmyadhd to continue the conversation.